Recorded live. Scuba Obsessed Weekly Podcast. We talk about all things scuba diving from cool new gear, places to dive, and scuba in the news. Scuba Obsessed Episode 211 is recorded live August 28th, 2014. Welcome back to Scuba Obsessed, coming to you from the end of summer. I'm Darren Jilson. Joining me this week, we have Jim Schultz. How are you doing today, Jim? I'm doing just great, Darren. Thank you. And it does feel kind of like the end of summer. I think we've passed the peak heat, which we didn't get a lot this year. No, hasn't been that bad. Which, I mean, you say not that bad, like heat's a bad thing. C- compared to the winters we've had, I've, I, I, I was looking forward to a little bit. Well, I'm trying to think if we had any days in the last month or so that broke 100. I don't recall any breaking 100. And we did have maybe a stretch of two or three days in the 90s, but nothing like we've we've had in the past. And then Mac may be joining us in a little bit. I'm I'm thinking that he's trying to dry out or something. That's why he's not on. Uh, Well, he was wet today. I do know that. I, I live vicariously. While I'm at work, he's out diving. And it looks like every day he's got more posts. And he's not the only one. There's been a, quite a few dive buddies with him. So if he gets a chance, he's going to jump in a little bit later. But before that, let's go ahead and jump right on into the news. We'll cue the first article up. Police have made an arrest on improper lobster diving. This is the Florida Fish and Wildlife Conservation Commission arrested a man in Miami Gardens who they say was illegally diving for lobsters near South Pine Channel Bridge in the Keys. Carlos Mangrainer, 25, is facing multiple charges, misdemeanors, for allegedly capturing 23 lobsters. This was uh, just over a week ago. Investigators said that he was diving along the rocks when they pulse with a pole spear when officers questioned him about whether he had a fish or lobster. He told them he was spearfishing but did not have any lobster or fish on him. One officer spotted a towel hidden in the rocks along the edge of the water. They asked him who the towel belonged to, and he said it belonged to him. When the officer lifted a towel, he discovered 23 lobsters, of which 21 were undersized. That's not good. Five of them showed signs of spear marks. The officer. Can you spear a a lobster? I don't believe you're allowed to spear lobster. I'm. I think you have to take them by hand, and I think you're only allowed, what, like one or two? It's not too many. Uh, I'd love to get down there to try to do some of the, uh, not, not some illegal fishing, but uh, some lobster fishing. Officer said another man was diving with him and admitted the lobsters belonged to them. Both men were taken to the Key West Jail. They were issued on citations of having no fishing license, no lobster permits, and no diver's down flag. Yeah, that will get you. Now, mm-hmm. now down there, is that like hunting violations are up here? I mean, hunting, they go after everything. I mean, if you, if, you know, if you're caught hunting, it's your guns, the vehicle you came in, you know, anything related, they're taken. Do they do the same thing with lobster hunting? I don't know. It's said it's a misdemeanor, but they spent time in jail. So we'll have to follow this one and see how it comes out. Reports of illegal salvage 
prompted the examination of the USS Houston wreck. Now, this is a follow-up from last week where we talked about the USS Houston. Uh, The Navy had verified that that wreck was the U.S. military vessel. But when you listen to this, they, it, it sounds a little bit different. The The wreck was 72 years old, uh, and they're calling it now a war grave. What brought it to their attention was an Australian scuba diver plucked a bent trumpet from uh, the vessel, which uh, the spot where he was at was about 120 feet down. Uh, they were able to do, determine that the horn belonged to one of the 1,100 sailors on the on the ship. But now the Navy is coming in and, and crying foul. So how do you cry foul of people diving on it if it's now just been identified? You become part of the United, or you exercise your authority as the United States government. Yeah. Well, the military vessels, uh, it seems to be, have retained the, are retained by the country in which they launch them or own mm-hmm. them. Right. Uh, it looks like in 1970s, the ship's bell came on the market and one of the uh, veterans groups purchased it, was able to secure it. So they know that the vessel was out there. Now the question is, how are they going to protect the wreck? Uh, oh, they'll probably ban diving on it. Well, they've, they're they well, talking about doing that. Uh, some of the veterans groups are saying that they, okay, so, so here's a quote. Diving and indications of diving in the shipwreck go back to at least the 70s. It was 1973 when the original bell of the ship, which had been brought by pilferers, was located somewhere being sold at an auction. Uh, They were able to recover the bell and have it installed, a memorial for the ship in Houston, Texas. They said other artifacts from the ship, like a trumpet, keep appearing on the surface. They said the Indonesian and Navy divers found systematic, methodical, and ongoing, unauthorized efforts to salvage the wreck. Divers found loose plates where rivets have been removed to provide easier access to the interiors of the ship, dive hoses to support crews from the surface, and tools to clear sediment from the wreck. The divers set up buoys to mark the site, and under underwater archaeology branch issued an interim report in the findings. How the U.S. can further protect a wreck is not entirely clear. The Law of Admiralty states the Navy still retains ownership of these wrecks. This is according to Horns Fisher, but I'm not sure what they can do about it. Said the Houston Lines in Indonesian waters, U.S. ships can only enter with permission, so the burden of protecting the site lies with the Indonesian fi- officials. The Navy is still formulating next step to how to proceed with the wreck, but a growing majority in the Houston Association feel the wreck should be off limits and not and not only salvage salvagers, but to recreational divers. I, you know, I can sympathize with with you know family members, maybe you know people who knew the people in the wreck, but you know saying that something's a war grave forever and ever and ever especially within shallow ranges, I think is a little tough. I know you've got the Arizona and Hawaii. I mean, I think that's a, a nice monument. But to do it for every single shipwreck where there's people have perished, I think is going beyond. And could we dive any of the wrecks we dive today? Yeah, I mean, think about it's military. So is it far to reach to say, well, how about Merchant Marine? Yeah, well, I, the, 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 you know, which this, this one is just that the Navy <clears throat> owns it. Yeah, you know, some of the other wrecks they wouldn't own it, but the grounds people don't want them to dive on is because it's a uh, a grave site. It's like you you know, don't fly a kite in a cemetery. You don't. Well, that's what, that's what you're saying. I I would. I'd have no problem with it. If I'm dead and there's people playing above me, that that's good for them. You know, if you're being respectful and yeah. <clears throat> Excuse me. I guess to me, there's a difference between a a a tomb and a headstone. 
you know, the, uh, the Titanic was a headstone. The Arizona, more a tomb. Well, this one, they I don't think they know. They're, they're saying there's bodies in it, but you don't know. Let's see, they say, well, how many was it? Like 1,200, 1,400? 1,100 yeah. sailors. And I'm sure there were some that went down inside the ship. Yeah, yeah, they had, they know that about three or 400 uh, made it to the coast uh, as survivors, but they, you know, there's, uh, you, so say you had at least a few hundred who went down with a vessel. Well, I think it's like anything else. If you're respectful, you know, you don't go disturbing human remains, but that's just my opinion. Yep. That, well, but I, I tend to agree with you on that. Uh, 79 tourists die while snorkeling in Hawaii waters over a five-year period. And uh, according to the state health department statistics, 79 tourists died while snorkeling from 2009 to 2013. And during that same period of time, eight scuba divers died, one free diver died, three died surfing, and 32 died while swimming. Uh, that said, that made the 79 snorkeling-related drownings the leading cause of accidental death in the 369 categories of injuries tracked by the health department over the five-year period. Nearly every one of those folks that perished is 55 or older. These incidents happened in three feet of water or less, and they could have literally stood up. So they're speculating that the cause is uh, related to people using muscles they haven't used in a while, uh, that they had skills that needed to be learned and practiced to do safely, and also uh, came down to panicking. Uh, in fact, uh, one of the shops in the area who doesn't rent gear but sells it was saying that he's recommending that when people uh, use snorkeling is that they they have the, the kind that has a check valve. Yeah. So if you, you panic, you don't breathe in the water. Yeah, that's one of my biggest problems with a snorkel is I'm so used to having a regulator in my mouth that when I've got a snorkel in my mouth, I want to dive down thinking it's a regulator. <laughs> yeah. yeah, well, I, I'm always amazed, having snorkeled and scuba dove, I'm amazed when you see somebody with a snorkel and fins swim down 20 or 30 feet and then come back up, clear the snorkel, and then get a, a breath. I, When I snorkel, I tend to stay right there at the surface. And just turning my head to look around, mm-hmm. I invariably, in the course of you know half an hour, will snuff water at least once or twice. And that's kind of what they're saying here is that it just, it just seems to be a little bit of a health issue combined with panic, three uh, drowning in three feet of water. Wow. Then there's a good article on the the bends. Uh, we'll put this one in the show notes. Uh, we won't really read it, but the, the question was posed to a doctor, uh, Dr. Jeff Hirsch. Let's see, what's what location is this from, do they say? Sometimes it's hard to tell with these newspapers where they are. Rika. Those Rika. Is that, are we talking New York? But uh, he goes into a lot of detail. He says, why do di-, the question was, well, how, why do divers get sick if they ascend too fast? And then he says, almost 10 million people in the United States scuba dive. There are about 1,000 injuries and 100 fatalities from this activity every year. To better understand diving injuries, necessary to understand the physical principles and how they affect divers. So he starts talking about gas, uh, liquid in the body. Uh, air-filled cavities, and he goes in. So it's a, it's a good article, something something worth reading, but uh, a good resource if you want more information on that is the Dan website, which I believe is dan.org, isn't it? Oh, it's uh, Rika is California, Y-R-E-K-A, California. And now they're saying that lionfish are bad for the environment. Oh, really? Yeah, those little lionfish. Who'd Somebody's new study, huh? Yeah, somebody got paid to figure that one out. 
Let's see. Research involving Dr. Jack Judd of Florida International University and a young girl named Lauren Arrington. While the issue, the attribution of the scientific research is critical discipline, much of the media focused so far as sidestep the real issue what lionfish tolerance for brackish water really means for the environment. Uh, and they go on and on and on. But if somebody likes to see themselves right, they must be getting paid by the word. Uh, study Seems led like- by Judd Environmental Biology of Fishes with researchers from the University of Miami and North Carolina State University. He discovered that fish typically associated coral reef could survive in waters with salinities as low as five parts per thousand or one-seventh the average salinity of an ocean water, so low that they could barely taste the salt in it, the new and worrying dimension to the exploration. Uh, he says, the low salinity tolerance I document suggests that the lionfish may be able to eventually cross the Amazon Orinoco plume, leading to potential colonization of much of the Atlantic coast of South America. Yeah, I don't know what they're saying. It's this. This goes in the yeah, no duh. It's a little obvious. It's like there's not like a a line out there, and the fish go, "Ooh, I can't go by this." As long as it's not too cold or too something, and there's food there for them, they're going to keep going. So they're, they're going to keep stretching until they yeah. I mean, they they were in the Pacific, <clears> so now they turns them back. Yep. So now they're in the Atlantic. So yeah, I but, okay. I think he's, he sounds a little miffed that this girl got all the PR that he felt like he should get. So he had a paper, a research paper, studying the salinity, and then she did her stuff. So it's, it's almost not quite calling her, accusing her of plagiarism. Okay, and another one. Okay, we need some happier news here. They're trying to spin this one as happy. I don't know if this is or not. Underwater maids, mussels, and clams could mop up waterways. This is from Live Science. A new study suggests that clams, mussels, and oysters make good underwater cleaners. These useful creatures serve as tiny water filtration systems, constantly sieving the water around them in their hunt for a meal of bacteria or microscopic algae known as phytoplankton or phytoplankton. They filter water. The bivalves tissue absorb the chemicals and pathogens that are present, things like herbicides, pharmaceutical flame retardants, according to the researchers at Stanford University in California. To see how good they were at cleaning up toxins in the environment, researchers put uh, floater mussels and Asian clams into the tank treated with wastewater contained various levels of contamination. Within 72 hours, the bivalves removed up to 80% of some of the contaminants in the water. Observing these shellfish choking up harmful chemicals got Stanford researchers think about how may they be cleansing clam sand mussels to good use. They decided to assign some of the underwater creatures a new job cleaning up dirty lake in the middle of san francisco so here they go let's introduce mussels into, zebra mussels into a lake they didn't call them zebra mussels well i was thinking about each one filtering two liters of water a day i've heard that before yeah they said we are considering using a raft carrying caged native bivalves which allow us to monitor the health of the bivalves and also protect them from predators oh my goodness this, this this can't this this reminds me of all the things that can go wrong. They said, yeah, like you said, each native mussel f- filters about two liters of water a day, so it doesn't take a whole lot to improve the water quality. Yeah, we we know that we got the Great Lakes to prove it. It's just that do you really want them? You're not you're not going to be able to contain them. Now they, they did they say something like native. They did say native caged native bivalves. So if they're there, why aren't they? going yeah maybe they need more of them yeah well I, I i would guess if it's native so saying that body of water if that's 
they've been there for thousands of years and they're native and you're just trying to create an environment where more of them grow, I'd, I'd be all for that. But to go and take a non-native species and put it in there because it's going to clean stuff up, you know, uh, as I've probably talked about before, yeah, th- there's been many animals introduced where they had supposedly beneficial impact but didn't. Uh, gypsy moths come to mind. Uh, they, those were thought to be, they, we'll just take this moth and we'll cross it with a silkworm and we'll have this really great animal for creating silk. And it didn't quite work out that way. It just turned out into a mess. And then here we have turning divers into citizen scientists. This was, right. this was from National Geographic. And I don't know why I took it wrong, but what's a citizen scientist versus a regular scientist? Probably how much you get paid. <laughs> Whether you're, uh, you, you, you have to have some sort of, um, yeah, I, I guess I get rubbed the, the wrong way when people try and say somebody's better or, or worse than somebody else. You know, uh, but this is a, a project where they're trying to take advantage of the divers, specifically paddy divers. They've got a tool they're using, iSeahorse. Allows anyone, anywhere in the world to see seahorses in the wild to help protect the animal by sharing photos and data with scientists and other conservationists. They said finding seahorses isn't always easy. They're masters of camouflage, often difficult for the most experienced divers to track. So over the past two years, colleagues from the Project Seahorse and the Shedd Aquarium, which is in Chicago, have been working to turn Citizen Scientist Seahorse Program into a paddy scuba dive course. 48 seahorse species listed on the International Union of Conservation of Nature, red list of threatened species. 26 are data deficient, meaning there's enough information to know whether the species are thriving or disappearing. So thanks That's for what I need, Darren. My Patty Seahorse Specialist card. <laughs> yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And then I can get my... Well, you, you got the card. Lake, and... Great Lakes Mollusk card. So yeah. So I can determine if it's a zebra mussel or a... Quagga. Quagga mussel. Yep. Or maybe a native mussel. Said after a year of hard work, the Sea Horse Specialty Course was just approved by Patty. This is it gives divers a skill to make important contributions to seahorse science and conservation while doing one of the things they love most: paying for new certifications. <laughs> right. <laughs> Patty, pay another dive instructor. We decided to launch a specialty course in Thailand since there's a lack of published literature on seahorse distribution and abundance in Thai waters. It also didn't go over too big in the Great Lakes, considering they don't have any seahorses. I added that last part. Well, that could be why I haven't seen any. Here I thought they were just camouflaged so well among the zebra mussels. Oh, boy. So the website is www.iseahorse.org. And if you once you've got that, then you can have the next one, which is this research paper. Why does the sea smell? Uh, don't, don't tell me. I don't want to know. I just want to enjoy the smell of the sea, know that it's the smell of the sea, and leave it at that. I don't care if it's because of fish farts. Well, I, I, I won't. Just, I, I just. I won't I just t- tell you that. Don't want to know. I won't tell you that it's caused by Thank fish farts. You. Okay. That's what I think. It's fish farts. But that one was in the Popular Science magazine. They go into quite a bit of depth of the examples. And other than a lot of Latin words, you're not going to be too surprised. See? Fish farts. Almost. Now, how far is it across the. Uh, Great Lake, Lake Michigan. From here to Chicago is 60 miles, but that's not straight across, so eh, ballpark 
50 miles, 45 to 50 miles across this this piece of it, which is one of the wider pieces of the lake. Yep. So there's a challenge, which is to cross Lake Michigan on a paddleboard. Uh, Andrew Pritchard and four of his friends are planning to do that. They decided that it'd be a great way to raise money. They hope to raise $10,000 for the Alliance for the Great Lakes. Hmm. The trip is going to start in Algoma, Wisconsin, and it will be 58 miles across east to Frankfurt, Michigan. And they're expecting it to take 24 hours. They will have a support boat with them, equipment and communication emergency gear. The food and refreshments will main, they'll maintain on their board so they won't have to step foot on the boat. Okay. I'm not knowing. <laughs> this does not sound like something that's easy to do. No, and this is not the time of the year that you want to be doing that. You're hoping you've got maybe the wind at your back. Yeah, of course, the, the weather, the wind, water is probably its warmest about now yeah but well the, the idea we is you, start, you know this, this is when you start getting the early storms yeah well in, in the photo they show them paddling and it is flat i don't see it that flat that often on the great lakes no not this time of year and this and then if you got wind coming the other way along with waves say you've got let's just say it's a nice one to three footers yeah 24 hours of being beaten one to three foot on a paddleboard yep. that is not going to be a fun time they're going to earn that money if they if they can do it. I, I certainly wish them the best of luck. I think they're going to need it, along with a large boat to make sure they stay upwind of them to try to flatten it uh, out a little bit so they're in the lee of the lee of the wind from the boat. Kind of like in the '80s when they they had the big thing where everybody's trying to swim across the English Channel or from Cuba to Florida, and they would mm-hmm. always have the big boat breaking the the waves. So kind of the same idea. Yeah. Now, how's this? Uh, this one is in Neptune, New Jersey. I know where that's at. That's on Long Beach Island. And uh, I, I guess they have water there? Yeah. And what they're saying is that as the result of beach restoration, uh, which is what they're contributing to uh, part of this find, a boy, Noah Cordile, who's visiting from Virginia, found something that brushed into his leg. Uh, it was sharp enough to hurt. He said, I thought it was a crab. When he picked up the pointy black two-and-a-half-inch object, he figured it better show to his parents uh, and his sister. His sister was unimpressed, but his parents were excited. His mother contacted uh, Greg Latanzi, uh, president of the Archaeological Society of New Jersey, an assistant curator in archaeology, an ent- what, it was an ethnography bureau of the New Jersey State Museum in Trenton. Now, do you get paid by the letter in your title? Uh, well, I don't know. I have to ask Governor Christie. Latanzi. <laughs> said, I was basically blown away. Finding these points are rare. So they're saying it's a 10,000-year-old, uh, was it Paleo-Indian arrow point. Uh, ancient Native Americans used such arrows to spear fish and hunt mastodine. And that area would have been the Lenny Lenape's. Is that what they say? Is that where they, they come up? No. Oh, they don't even bring they it didn't, up? They didn't say, but uh, the New Jersey area was the Lenny Lenape Indians. Yeah. So they're estimating the age to be between 8,000 and 11,000 years old. And he says that there's probably only about 20 to 25 of these points that have ever been unearthed. And most of those have been professional archaeological digs. said 10,000 years ago, the ocean level is a lot lower than it is today. And the ocean was 100 miles further away. They said uh, where it was found, uh, ancient Native Americans were walking on that surface. Yeah, they're, what they're doing after... Uh 
Hurricane Sandy went through that area so bad, they've been pumping sand from the inlets and also offshore. Yep. Uh, just pumping it up onto the beaches mm-hmm. to rebuild the beaches and raise the raise the beach level. Like, Otherwise, you, it's so flat, it, you know, there's no... Could you see Mac out there? He'd be following the, the dredges. Yeah. <laughs> And this is exactly why. I mean, they they're, yeah. they're they're digging down. That's why. Yep. So everything got stirred up. You then sucked it up and spit it out, and then things well, start to ha- separate. It, it had to be buried because if it were on the surface or on the bottom, you know, rolling around, it would have gotten the edges smoothed off of it. Yeah. Yeah. The edges would have been smoothed, and then it would have worked its way naturally down into the the bottom fairly quickly. Mm-hmm. Let's see. And then they said something. There was a good line in here at the end. Uh, okay. Uh, he, the Latenzi says the Cordell family has full rights to Noah's discovery. The law basically says finders keepers. He says, I was able to take a photograph and measurements of it and is now located in our maps and has a number. So it's helpful for the research, but they found the object and it's theirs. We've gotten donations in the past, but as museum professionals, we, we try not to sway people either way. Unless you just happen to want to donate it. Uh, the family plans to donate the arrow to the museum, preferably one on Long Beach Island, which they dearly love. He says, it's super cool that it happened, but it's not ours. It's for everybody. My father-in-law died recently, collected arrowheads, and my husband thinks this was from his father. We know his father would have loved to see it. And from the bottom of my soul, I feel I re- it was meant to be seen by everybody. Well, that's nice. Yeah. Yeah, that, yeah I think I would do something. Yeah, I wouldn't. I would definitely leave it on my wall and frame for a few years show it off a bit but you know eventually see that it finds its way to museum and then here's one you don't have jim so i'm going to send it to you all right actually we'll we'll do this let's do the cool scuba gear one first and then i'll do this next one so the i I put it a cool scuba gear because i didn't have any other spot for it but uh i've seen this one a few different times but the chinese are saying that they've got uh that they're working on a supersonic submarine that could go 9,900 kilometers from Shanghai to San Francisco in less than two hours. Supersonic submarine. And the idea is uh, a technology called supercavitation, where they create an air bubble in front of the uh, submarine, and somehow that's able to reduce okay. the friction. So, But when you, you go through the article, and they're claiming to have invented something, they're also saying all they got to do is figure out how to do the air bubble and the the technology to move the vessel forward and i'm thinking well if you haven't figured out those two things you haven't really figured out anything we have a concept yeah but the russians and germans and the united states and i in they even highlight iran has all been conducting research in super cavitation so i'm not thinking that china has anything ahead of anybody else on this i'd like to see it heck i'd love to go that quick i just can't believe you can get the friction so low that you would be able to go quicker than above the water or through the air. Yeah. Uh, they, they said, you've got to wonder what kind of, you know, there, there are sonic booms in the air. What would a subsonic or sub surface when you break the sound barrier? Yeah. Well, other than they, they mentioned using it for torpedoes, where they said they had a torpedo using this technology that got uh, speed of more than 370 kilometers doesn't say kilometers per hour, just says kilometers, so that's weird. Mm. They said that's faster than usual torpedoes. Uh, they said they've also had some vessels using this technology that have made 75 kilometers per hour, which, you know, it's at about 50, 
560. Uh, so I think you could brute force. You know, I, you know, there's some potential for it, you know, the, but, you know, I guess everybody poo-poo's something before it really happens. They even talk about making swimsuits that would hold tiny air bubbles to reduce drag, but uh, let's minus, yeah, yeah, Let, let's yeah. see it. Yep. I'm all for it. If you can make it work, I'd ride in one. I'll believe it when I see it. Okay, and here I'm going to send you this one. This one didn't make my normal show notes. Dutch pilots. Yeah. So pilots spot a creepy red glow under the Pacific Ocean. And if you look at that photo, mm. said the the red glow was spotted between Russia and Alaska. The pilots thought they were seeing an underwater version of the northern lights, and they spotted a strange glow coming out of the water. The lights were seen south of the Kamchatka Peninsula in Russia during a flight from Hong Kong to Anchorage, Alaska. As of yet, nobody can explain the lights. Uh, pilots are speculating that maybe they flew over an underwater volcano as it erupted. The Dutch pilot, uh, JPC Van Heest, Heest, said he and his co-pilot first noticed a flash of light on the horizon before flying over the deep red glow 20 minutes later in what he called the creepiest thing he'd ever experienced in his flight career. The closer we got, the more intense the glow became. Illuminating the clouds and sky below us is a strange orange glow. In part of the world, there was supposed to be nothing but water. The pilots remember beginning to hear news of earthquakes in Iceland, Chile, and California before they took off. Began to worry about this encounter would be an ash cloud. Luckily, the plane experienced no problem during the remaining flight, and the captain, Van Hicht, uh, now hopes the red glow will come with a silver lining. Now I'm just hoping that if a new island's been formed there, at least it can be named after me as an official discoverer. That'd be pretty hmm. cool. Mm. Actually, I just think it was the aliens uh, cooling off their engines. Uh, you know, it's a little further north, but yeah, yeah, they just you know they had their you know, can't vessel. come to Lake Michigan all the time. Well, they're testing their cavitation engines. Yeah, so Mac's gonna be mad he missed that one. Yep, we'll have to send him this one. Yeah. So that does it for Scuba the News. Let's see. Did you get any diving in since last week? Yes, I did. Where'd you end up getting? We went out to the Havana. Nice. And uh, found a new, new, more of the wreck is exposed than it was earlier in the season. And I was swimming along and saw an unusual shape, just barely sticking out of the sand. So I started fanning it and it turned out to be a large, like a chain shackle. And I fanned a little more and saw some chain that we've never seen before. So I'd like to get back and see if we can find more of it. But we found one end of a piece of chain. Now, I I saw the video that you had shot of that. That chain, is it going over the rail? Um, Not really sure. uh, Yeah, because I couldn't tell. Not really sure. It it seemed like it might have been... Attached, it was attached to a very, very uh, sturdy piece of the wreck. So, we're uh, I want to trace it out and see if I can figure out what it is. Yeah, because attached to it, right? Because I, I, you'd expect it to go through a hose pipe. If it were anchor chain, yeah. Yeah. Also, that's not an anchor chain. I don't think it's anchor chain. I think it might be part of the uh, forward rigging. I wasn't aware they like used some chain. Some chain may have they may have used some chain between the uh, the bowsprit. Okay. And and the uh, maybe the stem. To, maybe to keep it from swinging too far then. Yeah, or you know, on the you need something to hold the bowsprit down. Right. Because your your rig wants to pull it up, and I think this may have been a piece of chain that attached to 
the bowsprit um, to possibly hold down portion a portion of the bowsprit. You know, count a counter tensioner or a tensioner on the bowsprit. Okay. But I won't know till we dig it out a little more because it certainly looked like it was coming off the stem. Okay. Well, that, that I could see that. So you, you think about it. Anything that if you look at a modern sailing vessel today, and we use you know either wire or rope rigging, mm-hmm. they could have uh, substitute with chain if they thought that was the most economical and secure way to do it. Mm-hmm. Nice. So any any other diving after that? Uh, that was it for me. I know Max's been in the river two or three times this week. Yeah, he, he's that he's, was all for me. Rumor has it that he's got a new top secret diving spot, and if you want to see what Max's been diving, well, he posted yeah, mudclub.scubaobsessed.com, and it's on the treasure page. And uh, let's see, do they show the photo? I'm clicking on treasure now. Wow, he yeah, even got he's got some, there lots of bottles. Holy mackerel! Look at that. A lot of stuff. Yeah. Bottles, skateboards, fishing poles. Uh, looks like Ken went diving with them too. They got a bicycle. Wow, they a lot, lot, some some nice milk bottles too. And I also heard he found another darn hutchie. <laughs> there's something about that river there. There's there's another motor, like a five or ten horsepower motor. I have found more motors in that river. When we say motors, we're talking the electric kind, like if you've got a piece of industrial equipment. And it must just be because yeah. they're heavy. Poor man's anchors. It doesn't look like they would make that good of an anchor. Guess if you don't have anything else. But he has been getting some diving in, and others have been going with him. Uh, he also noted today, I saw that the water is starting to get a little cooler. And that's what he said. He was commenting that uh, he's going to have to start putting more more gear back on. Well, yeah, I can't stay warm forever. But I'm jealous. I'm ready to get out. And then, when do you guys head to go up north? Uh, some are leaving Monday. Some are leaving Tuesday. So that's the annual Mud Club migration up to Sheboygan, Michigan, right there near the, what do you call that, the Straits? Uh, the Flats. Flats. Yeah, it's the Straits of Michigan is, you know, the is where we're headed. There's an area we call the Flats, which is a very shallow area where there used to be a lumber mill. And then Duncan Bay uh, in Sheboygan and the, and the river there in Sheboygan, they're all great diving. So everything from beach to wrecks at 130 feet. So some good diving. So we'll look forward to a report. If we can't connect with you for some reason, then we'll uh, look forward to a report when you get back. Uh, yeah, hopefully we can still get on next week. Yeah, we're going to make an attempt. We'll see. I'm, I'm, I'm hopeful. Wouldn't would hate to guarantee it, but uh, it's, it's worth the effort. Now, how's the preserve doing? I'm sorry, what was that? How's, how's the preserve doing? Uh, preserves doing same as usual. Nothing real new. Let's see. What's the dive shop for this week? I think we're to Moby's, aren't we? Moby's? Moby's Dive Shop, Grand Rapids, Michigan. www.mobysdive, that's M-O-B-Y-S dive.com. 616-364-5991. That's in the Grand Rapids area. And that was the one Mac was talking about last week. Yes, they've got a, uh, nice lake. Right there behind the shop. So you can go to the shop, uh, buy some stuff, and I think if you... I don't know what the requirements are for uh, for using the lake. I don't know if you can just show up the shop and, and use it or if you have to be part of a class. But uh, they do have that access to, to a diving location right behind the shop. Kind of the dream of a dive shop, I would think. 
So if you happen to be up in Grand Rapids, give them a try. Or you've also got American Dive Zone. Both of them are in that, that general area. Both of them have donated two air fills if you happen to show them your Southwest Michigan Underwater Preserve membership card. And what's that going for these days? $25. You can't beat that. Uh, so you want to see that and what other dive shops are participating? It's www.divesouthwestmichiganunderwaterpreserve.divesswmup.com. You can follow us on Facebook, facebook.com forward slash scuba obsessed. You follow us on Twitter at scuba obsessed. It seems like they can follow us someplace else. Oh, we also have the Scoop It page, Scoop It, which is S-C-O-O-P dot I-T forward slash M forward slash Scoob Obsessed. Or you can link to us from our Scoob Obsessed page. It will take you to there. Uh, and, and we have news stories that we, we post on that all the time. So if you want to see the ones that didn't quite make the cut for the show, we have those each week. Not every day I, I post some, but usually you know two or three times a week there's articles that, that go out there. So if you can't get diving, at least you can read about it. Let me see. Did I even have a joke for this week? It seems kind of late to be thinking about it now. Did you get the one that I sent you? Uh, let's see. Did you? How did you send it to me? Uh, I think I emailed it to you. Email. I, I do remember something. So let me pull that one up. That might be the one. Because for some reason I was thinking I didn't have to look for one this week. I've noticed is that uh, you know, everybody should stop by your local dive shop here at the end of the year. As the diving season winds down, I'm on quite a few newsletter lists for dive shops, and I'm seeing some pretty nice deals. So maybe you didn't get that dry suit or the wetsuit starting to leak a little bit and you need to get it replaced. You might want to check your dive shops. They may be willing to work out some deals as the season starts to come to close. Let's see here. I know I need to get out. I feel like I'm missing again. Ah, here, here, here it is, Jim. Here, sure joke if i can get it to come up why is it not showing me the whole thing here i'm going to copy and paste this to something i can read it on okay this isn't the one i thought but uh i, I i'm i'm ready to give it a shot all right okay so uh anything else to plug before we get on to the joke no i think that's it okay well here we go a local scuba club had chartered a boat for a trip to one of the michigan's greatest shipwrecks there were 13 people on the boat, the storm blew up and it became extremely dark and the rain falling so hard you couldn't see 10 feet in front of the boat. Peters volunteered to stand in the bow and act as lookout. Big gust of wind, waves hit and threw Peters overboard. The captain searched for nearly four hours trying to find Peter till the storm blew the boat aground in a very remote area and started to break up in the rocks. The divers abandoned the sinking vessel and swam through the crashing surf of the shore where they counted heads and had all 12 remaining members of the club. Glad to be alive but cold and wet and exhausted, all the divers felt terrible for Peters, who had been one of their favorites, and they did not have his body. They spotted some lights in the woods and trudged up a hill to the lights until they came across a huge house. What they didn't know was that this house is a house of ill repute, hidden in the forest to serve all who came. The captain pounded on the door to all divers crowding around him. The door swung open, and much to surprise stood a beautiful woman with long black hair and a great deal of cleavage showing from her large breasts. Thinking about her business, a huge smile came across her face to see so many men standing there at one time. The captain said, we are tired, wet, and exhausted, and desperately need warmth and comfort. Again, the madam looked at all the men standing there, thinking she'd just hit the jackpot. With a broad smile on her face, she said, well, captain, you've come to the right place. My girls can surely give you warmth and comfort. Divers are some of our most welcome customers. How many men do you have? The captain replied, well, men, there are 12 of us, but we don't have Peters. At that moment, the madam turned white and fainted. Bye.
years. Yeah. That sounds like a little twist on one we had a little while ago. Mm. But yeah, that, that that would that would kind of make her not make her day. So on that note, go out there and get wet. Stay safe and don't hurt any seahorses or try to spearfish undersized lobsters. Recording has ended. Oh, I, I think. Uh, I hope call recording. You recorded the call.